93.3 WBT. The Pete Callender Show. I'm the Pete. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. We're waiting on uh, a press conference out of Waukesha, Wisconsin, about uh, the uh, Christmas parade massacre that occurred yesterday evening. person drove their vehicle through the parade, running down people, killing at least five, 40 others injured. And uh, there was... Second, I was commenting earlier on the because uh, I just want to make this point real quick because I was ripping on the Charlotte Observer for not carrying any stories on their landing page. They didn't post any of the story in the nation in the nation or world uh, sections. And I also happened to catch this story here that Joe Maris Marusak Marusak uh, that he wrote talking about the uh, Thanksgiving parade. That's going to happen on Wednesday night in Center City, Charlotte. Instead of traditionally, the Thanksgiving parade was always on Thanksgiving morning, but this year they're moving it to Wednesday night. And here's why this matters. The lack of coverage of the Waukesha attack, why it matters is because your audience, your your readers, they are not aware of that story, yet they've got a parade that is occurring on Wednesday night, right? So 48 hours from now, there's a there's a parade getting ready to occur, and do you think they, I don't know, might be interested in that information? Or how about this? Do you think planners are? Do you think it might come up in any other news stories? Do you think it might come up in coverage? If you're going to talk to people about the organizing of our parade in Charlotte, do you think maybe somebody might throw a question out about security in light of what we just saw last night? And if your audience doesn't know anything about it, they're not being well served. I'll just leave it at that. Here's an email uh, from Thomas who says, Pete, what disturbs me about people you're talking about in the press or on social media is that they can hold two dissimilar, disjointed, and completely unrelated thoughts in their minds and then merge them together to make some liberal crazy talking point and then Others join in the fray. They reinforce the craziness with their crazy comments and their irrational agreement. And then I read it on the Internet and then I get crazy. Like that's I understand. Yes, I do. (laughs) I understand. Uh, And then there's this from Dean, I believe. Yeah. Pete on the Charlotte Observer. The reason that there was nothing about parade in paper was because papers lose money, have to close early to make centralized printing schedules, not like radio that plays best of every weekend. That's what I love about Dean. Even when he's trying to make a joke and agree with you, he still manages to insult. That's that's the best part of reading your emails, Dean. (laughs) By the way, um, the best of stuff, just uh, two things. Number one, You'll notice I didn't say anything about the dead tree copy of the paper because the dead tree copies. I I don't get the, I don't get the print copy of the observer. I don't know why anybody would because then you got to worry about throwing it away, recycling it, all of that hassle. Um, Number one, number two, uh, plus also gets all over your fingers. And, and for my purposes, no, the digital subscription is adequate. Now, if we want to go down this rabbit hole, like I would submit, if I'm paying for the digital subscription, then I shouldn't have to suffer through all of the ads that you spam me with. But that's a different argument for a different day. 
But the digital side of things, Dean, the digital stuff gets populated by people outside of the Charlotte Observer. There's not somebody working all the time at the Charlotte Observer to populate the website with all of the national stories. There's just not. Okay, so that that's an, your, yours is an antiquated view, first of all. Second of all, if you don't think that we could sell those slots on the weekends <laughs> for a bunch more money, you're crazy. We need the flexibility. That's what that comes down to. We need flexibility, particularly when sportsing occurs. So let me bounce over here to Jimmy. Hello, Jimmy. Welcome to the program. What's going on? Hey there, Pete. Hey, what's well, up? I guess with these two cases, you know, and the Renhouse thing, the uh, one of the victims or one of the guys who got shot was a pedophile. And I see this guy here in his rap sheet, he's a pedophile too. So I guess the Democrats, I mean the mainstream media, now pedophilia is okay. Well, I, well, I'll say this. This was one of the things I heard about Donald Trump at the time. I'm not saying Donald Trump's a racist, but all the racists like Donald Trump, right? Like, isn't that the, I think that's the standard we're supposed to adopt here, right? That I'm not saying they're pedophiles. I'm just noticing that they keep defending all the pedophiles. Exactly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is uh, an irony. I appreciate the call, Jimmy. Thanks. Yeah, that is. Yeah, because Joseph Rosenbaum, convicted pedophile, and they're celebrating him as a hero. Uh, Huber and Grosskreutz, both of these guys, you know, again, it's it's just like I said earlier. Why do they pick the worst people, the worst cases for, to be their poster children for their cause? And I suspect now it's because they don't want to unify people to fix something. They just want the issue. Right. They just want the issue. Uh, Brian says, Pete, what about the 70 people looting a Nordstrom in Walnut Creek, California. Now, I will say that story did make the Charlotte Observer. That story was on the Observer's website. I don't know about the Dead Tree copy, because as I mentioned earlier, I don't I don't read the Dead Tree copy. But the CharlotteObserver.com website, yes, they do have the story published yesterday about the big ransacking of the Nordstrom store. Dozens of robbers swarmed a Nordstrom store Saturday night, November 21, at an outdoor mall in Walnut Creek, streaming out with boxes and bags to flee in waiting cars. The robbery spree broke out at 9 p.m. So that's interesting. 9 p.m. California time, this story, this story gets into the nation world feed at the Charlotte Observer. But the story about the Waukesha parade massacre that occurred earlier doesn't we may never know why police responding to 911 calls arrested three people in the chaos out in california two fleeing in a vehicle one fleeing on foot according to kgo the robbery spree uh saw as many as 25 vehicles pull up in front of the store 80 people in masks ran inside a similar incident took place friday night at union square in san francisco where a swarm of people ransacked stores Six were arrested after people shattered windows and ran off with merchandise from Louis Vuitton, Fendi, Burberry, Dolce & Gabbana, and other high-end stores. Yeah, the back-to-back flash mob lootings in the San Francisco area. These are alarming experts now. These are alarming experts. 
I'll get to that in a second. Now I'm still monitoring to see when the uh, if the Waukesha you know, police are doing a, a press briefing, and I still I still don't see it. So. Uh, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110 at one We're going to talk to former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. He has a new book out, but I haven't talked to him in quite a while. So we'll touch base with him. That's after one thirty. This is John. Hello, John. Welcome to the show. What's up? Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, it's, it's very obvious why the media isn't covering this. This guy was a Black Lives Matter activist. It was all over his Twitter feed. And he was released from jail just two days before Rittenhouse's verdict. Uh, this was clearly a retribution against white people for Rittenhouse's verdict. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a potential explanation. You don't know that to be true. Nobody does at this point, uh, unless he has confessed it to police. But that, that tends to be, or I should say, that seems to be where the evidence tends to point. But I don't know that to be true at this point. Um, so I'm not like if I were a reporter, I would not be putting it out there as if this is the story, that this is the truth, because we don't know that. But what we are seeing is the exact opposite, which is they're promoting this story that, well, you know, he was just at another stabbing down the street. So he was just trying to get away from that crime when he inadvertently plowed through scores of people in a parade like this is literally what they're going with <laughs> i think to, yeah, in order to exactly. avoid telling the, the story that, yeah that you're that you've laid out because i think that is the more believable story it's sort of like when somebody you know uh runs into a public place they open fire on a bunch of people and they're yelling something that sounds very similar to aloha snack bar and uh they kill a bunch of people and then they get killed by the police like and well we may never know why they did it like no, I think we have a pretty good idea why they might have done it, especially when you watch their video that says they did it because they're trying to kill infidels, right? I, I think it's the same dynamic. I think you are correct, but I don't know that to be true. Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. That makes sense. But, I know the game. I know the, all the libel. I know why you can't say that. But no, yeah. well, no, there's no, no, there's no, there's nothing that's stopping me from saying if I believed that that was the case, there's nothing that stopped me from saying it. I, but I don't know that to be the case. And I try to stick with the stuff in, in these types of scenarios, especially within the first 24 hours. I always try to let the investigators do their job and then wait to form an opinion about what I believe occurred. That's not to say that that, that opinion should you know stay uh, unchanged in the face of new evidence. But no, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I do. I tend to agree that that that, that is what happened. But I don't know that yet. I'm just looking at the the information that, you know, Internet sleuths have been able to figure out, as it sounds like you have. Right. Right. Yeah. So, no, there's yeah, no. There, yeah. All right. I appreciate the call, John. There's no um, there's no slander law or libel law or anything like that that is preventing me from telling you whether I think that is true or not. I would tend to agree that that is seemingly where the facts are pointing but i like i said i i don't know that and i'm not sure what investigators know at this point but i darn sure am not signing on to the ap version of this story which is well we think he was fleeing another stabbing and so he completely you know messed up by driving through the crowd no i've seen enough other evidence to suggest that there might actually be some other motivation going on so i'm just kind of i'm gonna wait but once I hear what the investigators turn up 
And when I see some other investigations by other media outlets, then, yeah, I'm going to make a determination. I will say this. This guy's case, and John was exactly right, this guy's case is now going to alert a lot of uh, the the normies, <laughs> the normals, <laughs> a lot of people who haven't been paying attention to this topic are going to get a crash course in the Democrats' plan to abolish bail, cash bail. Democrats have been all about this, all about it since George Floyd, all about it. They want to get rid of the cash bail system. They say it's basically Jim Crow, it's racism, uh, and it's just a way that people uh, get kept down by the systemic racist infrastructure, okay? So they have been, by the election of these progressive leftist uh, district attorneys throughout America, the one in San Francisco is a good example. What's his name? Uh, Chesa Bowden. Uh, there's also this guy up in um, New York, Daniel Farrell, assistant DA, the DA's office in New York, same deal. Uh, this story, actually, this is from hotair.com. Last Sunday, New York police officer Kyo Sun Lee was walking on patrol on patrol in the Bronx when he was suddenly attacked unprovoked by a man who struck him in the back of the head with a blunt object. Eventually, 38-year-old Isis Thompson was arrested and arraigned for the attack. But at arraignment, the assistant DA asked the judge to cut Thompson loose on supervised release without bail, which he was. Given all of the, quote, bail reform that's been pushed through in New York City as part of the liberal empty the jails movement, you might not find that terribly surprising. But the case has a serious twist to it. The judge in this case was informed, was told that Thompson had previously served part of a five-year sentence in prison for attempting to stab a different NYPD officer to death in 2008, plunging a knife into his stomach six times. And despite that information, this guy still got set free without bail. As a repeat offender, Thompson is looking at potentially a seriously long stretch in prison if he's convicted. Does that make him a flight risk? I would think so. Even if he doesn't hit the road, he's demonstrated that he's crazy enough to randomly attack cops twice now. What is going to stop this guy from going out and doing it again this week while he's awaiting trial? There isn't any way you look at this. He's either a flight risk or he's a risk to public safety, and that is precisely what the bail system was created for. And he's not some nonviolent offender. Two DAs on Long Island lost their offices in landslide elections, or defeats, I should say, uh, to a pair of Republicans who ran on a promise to reverse the bail reform policies. A lot of people are getting a real quick understanding about what bail reform means in light of Waukesha. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. So if you haven't done your Christmas shopping yet, may I suggest you gather 70 or so of your closest friends, maybe some random acquaintances, and then just go raid a Barnes & Noble and uh, pick up uh, The Chief's Chief. It's the book by Mark Meadows, former congressman and the, uh, the former chief of staff to President Trump. Uh, 
Mark, I guess I should call you. Welcome <laughs> to the show. How are you? I'm good, Pete. It's great to be back with you. And, and obviously, uh, uh, as you bring the truth uh, to the folks there at WBT, it's, uh, it's great to be back and talking to uh, an old friend, if I can say it that way, even though you, you are in the media, so you don't actually have friends. Exactly. Not a one. That's the whole point. Uh, so, no, for, so uh, Mark ran for Congress his first year. I mean, I'm not saying it's simply coincidental, although it is totally coincidental, that you ran for Congress in 2012, happened to be the year that I got there, and uh, you beat a fellow by the name of Hayden Rogers, if I remember correctly. That was that's correct. Yeah, that's Heath correct. Shuler's chief of, or yeah, his, Heath Shuler's chief of staff, who ran for the seat when Shuler did not uh, run for re-election, and then you won. And uh, and so that and so you were the congressman for the district out there for all those years, and then you went off and worked for the administration. You went to the executive branch. So uh, and you picked a great time for it. What with the pandemic hitting, you had the riots breaking out. <laughs> <laughs> you really you timed it well. Uh, yeah, it, it was a tough. It was a tough year. I will say that it was a great honor to serve the 45th president of the United States. But being the chief of staff during uh, uh, what was probably one of the most difficult years uh, for our nation in recent history uh, was certainly a challenge. So you wrote this book called "The Chief's Chief," uh, and was this is this essentially what documenting that year? Is that right? Yeah, documents that year. A little bit uh, before I went to be the chief of staff, uh, some of the things and the parameters of, of people uh, that uh, I served with in Congress, obviously Jim Jordan's mentioned in there, uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, to a lesser extent, some of my other colleagues. But but really it was designed to give uh, bring all the uh, people into the Oval Office to uh, to talk about some of the, the stories that are, have not been in the news, uh, and quite frankly, some of the ones that have been in the news, but written by people that actually were not in the room where it happened. And uh, and so I correct the record on a few things, tell a few stories that uh, a lot of people have never heard, uh, and even one story that the, the president himself was not aware of that was happening behind the scenes uh, when he came down with COVID. What was, can you tell us briefly what that is? Don't, I, you don't have to give the spoilers away or anything. I yeah, mean, we well, be... not to give the spoilers yeah. away. It, it really uh, has to do with uh, the fact that he had been advocating very strongly for a therapeutic called Regeneron. He ended up being the, the first uh, non-trial uh, patient to actually take that monoclonal antibody, but how he came to get it and and how it was actually administered to him is a story in the book that uh, I think uh, all the readers will find interesting, but certainly even the President of the United States, the 45th President of the United States, would find interesting. What of, uh, how about, uh, you said you correct the record. You want to give yeah, an example yeah. of that? Yeah, I, I think probably the biggest thing is, is uh, so many times where uh, some of the media would suggest that the president was not listening to counsel or that he was uh, dogmatic in, in his position uh, and, and how he pushed back on that. And one of the particular examples I share uh, is really with uh, regards to Afghanistan. Uh, the, the president probably more so than any Republican president that I, I, I can remember uh, wanted to make sure that we don't stay in these endless wars and that we come bring our, our fighting uh, men and women and service members back home. 
and and so he had looked at a withdrawal and and had had that uh, planned out uh, with with Secretary Esper and General Milley. Uh, General Milley, as you know, continued to give advice to Joe Biden. But then we contrast that with what actually happened in this administration and uh, and share the behind the scenes, the fact that 13 service members didn't have to die and the, and the, and the plans that are there. But a, a lot of times uh, the media wants to portray it one way uh, when the facts of the matter are very different. Yeah. You mentioned also um, there were personnel, people in his administration that worked against him. Do you uh, like who? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, honestly, some of that was Secretary Esper at the Department of Defense. I highlight that. Uh, you actually have uh, a number of people uh, within, uh, even within the West Wing, that would share uh, stories about what supposedly was you know, was happening. And and I can remember one particular example where I'm talking to a reporter and they say, well, we're we have good sources that say that it happened exactly this way. And I said, well, uh, I'm I'm sitting with the only other good source in uh, that was actually in the meeting and they didn't talk to you. So I'm not sure who you're talking to. And so we we try to uh, to share how some of the, the quote fake news and it was not a, a term I ever used until I went to the White House. Uh, then I found a lot of the White House correspondents, uh, they would take an anonymous source versus a, a, uh, White House source that was willing to go on a record if it was salacious and willing to go forward. I talk a little bit about the Russia hoax and, and what happened there and what didn't happen. Uh, John Durham's, uh, most recent, uh, uh, uh indictment actually starts to, uh, shed a little bit more light on that. All of that coming home uh, hopefully will make for an interesting read. So, and I've talked a little bit about this over the last week, the uh, the Durham investigation and how this is falling apart and people are realizing the extent to which this uh, story was concocted. And um, so I guess I, could, I should just ask you, do you think that the intelligence community laundered this story that they ran an op on President Trump and his campaign and his family? Yeah, well, I, as you know, because you and I talked about this previously, uh, I was one of the few people that suggested that indeed that that President Trump's campaign was spied upon. Uh, I, I think that the there were people within the intelligence community uh, that certainly allowed for that to be weaponized. Uh, it, it was actually not just. Uh, you know, the Hillary Clinton campaign and feeding information to this group or that. But there were signs that would indicate uh, from an intelligence standpoint that we knew that it was not accurate. I mean, the ability of, of the U.S. intelligence to be able to tell what is going on or not going on should should frighten most civil libertarian uh, uh, minded people. And yet, uh, when we look at this, uh, it 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 was dangerous the way that we allowed some within the intelligence community and the Department of Justice to allow it to continue, and hopefully the whole truth will come out in the coming uh, weeks and months. And I'm also I'm sure the irony is not lost on you watching President Biden, um, having heard all of the criticisms against Trump at the time. I recall that he's mentally unfit for office, that his kids are profiting from his dad's tenure, that he's an authoritarian, 
and now you see Biden, and uh, he's kind of doing all of those things that people accuse Trump of doing. And I just, I'm, I'm kind of curious if that is the, if that is lost on you or not, or you noticed it. Well, it's not lost on me, and I think the interesting thing for your listeners and the people that are tuned in right now, uh, all the things uh, that oftentimes President Trump got accused of uh, uh, had a genesis somewhere in in having uh, someone else actually do it. And the very fact that you know we're defending artwork being so sold by Hunter Biden. Uh, and we're defending contacts with Ukraine and China and at the same time asking what Joe Biden's favorite flavor of ice cream is. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is not lost on me that there's two standards in Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and so if, if there's so many accusations that keep getting thrown one way, you, you need to oftentimes look and see if they're guilty of what they're throwing. So if the uh, if the book thing doesn't work out, uh, maybe do some artwork. Maybe uh, take to Listen, blowing paint I, I through could, a straw. I, I think right. <laughs> I couldn't get a dime for artwork, and actually, the only reason why I'm hopeful that people will go out and buy the Chiefs Chief is not because of the financial uh, message that it sends. I want to send a message to the left that uh, that there still is uh, a market out there for someone who's willing to say nice things about President Trump. And hopefully we'll send a very clear message there. Uh, at the end of the day, even if it doesn't make a dime, you and I will both be able to talk about things in the future, about our love for the country, and uh, the fact that we need to protect those freedoms and liberty. Mark Meadows, the uh, former chief of staff for President Donald Trump, former congressman from North Carolina, and the author of The Chief's Chief. You can pick it up uh, at uh, Barnes & Noble uh, pretty soon, right? So uh, December 7th, I want to say it's coming out? It is coming out, available for pre-order now, and so let's send a clear message. Uh, It will be available for Christmas gifts. Uh, but don't send those 70 people in your into the <laughs> Well, that's the way they do it. Yeah, that's the way they're doing it in San Francisco now, I see. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> Hopefully they'll pay for it. We'll see. All right. Uh, Mark, great to talk with you, sir. Take care, and happy Thanksgiving to you and the family. Same to you. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving, Pete. Take, Take care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I am, uh... By the way, what is the deal with the, uh... With the, with the pants nowadays? What's the deal with that? No, what's the deal with the pants nowadays? All right, look. I'm, all right, this is not... I'm not doing a spot for PhD weight loss and nutrition. But, I mean, if I were, I would tell you that, like, I, Christy and I... As I said we would, because I am a man of my word, we went and got some clothing for me over the weekend. Despite my rule that you're not supposed to buy anything for yourself before Christmas, right? Because other people can buy stuff for you. But I'm not sure how much weight I'm going to lose, so I don't want to tell people, like, buy me clothing and I'm just going to grow out of it, you know? So, which is weird because people don't say that with their babies. They're all about, you know buy me clothing for the kid, and then the kid's like, it wears it once, and then that's it. Anyway, I went to the store. What's with the pants 
around the calves. Do they not sell pants that that aren't acting as like I don't know flesh sleeves, like like casing, like sausage casing for your calves? Now look, okay, I get it. You know, big guys have bigger calves. I understand. I've been carrying around a lot of weight for most of my life, so I got really well-developed calves, if I do say so myself. But there's got to be some option available at the store. You, I mean, every single pair of pants cannot be, like, you know, trying to cram my leg through, um, I don't know, like an exhaust pipe. That's what it felt like. Even now, they're like the regular, there's like, you can get the slim fit or you can get the regular taper. Well, how about no taper? Is there a no taper feature? No, ta- no, there isn't. There's no no taper option. Come on, guys. Get it together. Fashion world. Whatever. Maybe I need to organize a bunch of people and go. St- we need to go raid a store that is like it's a, like a vintage store with all the bell bottoms. That's what I need to do. Actually, not even. When was the last... What was that, early 2000s? Like, I, I recall that being the style, the boot cuts. Where are all the boot cut jeans? That's what I should have asked. Where are the boot cuts? Oh. By the way, uh, good job, everybody, on Twitter responding to the, uh, uh, the tweets promoting that Mark Meadows was coming on, really dispelling the notion that you guys are not crazy. Um. Yeah, it really, it's like, gosh, why would you even, why would you ever be on social media? Like, I just get a little taste of the, of the dumbassery here. Uh, Like, why would, now I understand. Like, now I know why Meadows doesn't respond to me when I tweet. He's probably not even tweeting it himself, because why would you? This is the kind of response you get. Anyway, San Francisco saw back-to-back flash mobs ransack two different buildings, a Nordstrom and then a Louis Vuitton Uh, Over a 24-hour period, alarming security experts in a city that's already been struggling with rampant smash-and-grab incidents. Fox News reports some security experts are pointing to California's laws that are intended to reduce costs of incarceration as to why there's an increase in such crimes. ABC 10 reporting shoplifting charges regarding the theft of $950 or less were lowered from felonies down to misdemeanors. This was back in 2014. They also have no chase policies for shoplifters. Man, how did they ever not see that coming? (laughs) You've got, (laughs) you're not allowed to chase a shoplifter and shoplifting less than $950 worth of merchandise is just a misdemeanor. Hmm. I wonder what might occur. San Francisco Police Chief William Scott said earlier this year, some people calculate, hey, you know, I don't want to go over the 950, so let me steal $949 worth of property. Uh, if it's a felony, our officers can take action. But if it's a misdemeanor, that arrest has to be a private person's arrest. And that makes a difference because they have to be willing to do that. Other security experts in the area are advising that the best precaution people can take during such incidents is to not intervene. Quote, I cannot overstate the importance of doing that, Hector Alvarez said. And by doing that, he means doing nothing. A corporate security expert with more than 15 years of training, he said, quote, find a way to duck into a corner, get behind something, and literally become spam. 
Don't become part of the noise. Okay, first off, Hector, uh, that is a, that is the incorrect use of the word literally. Somebody cannot literally become spam, not by simply hiding behind a counter. That's not how one becomes spam. It involves a whole manufacturing process, very similar to trying to squeeze your leg into a pant leg nowadays. So you're not literally becoming spam. But his advice is cower in fear, San Francisco idiots. That's what you need to do. Cower in fear. The city's central district has seen a 753% increase in car break-ins over the last year alone. Things are going well in San Francisco. (laughs) 